How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the church it as suspicious? To hold the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, I would but they never don't even be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most local political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today, our very special guest is Candace Benbow. Candace is a theologian, essayist, columnist, baker, and educator whose work gives voice to Black women's shared experiences of faith, healing, and wholeness. She was named by Sojourners as one of, quote, 10 Christian women shaping the church in 2020. And I would assume that's increasing even more into 2022. It's not even official. She's top. Three now. I'm saying it. The list hasn't come out. I think she's jumped since then. The book, the book wasn't even out at that point. So we jumped it up. It. So I said it here first. So when you see the list later on, you know where you heard it. She has written for Essence, Glamour, The Root, Vice, Shondaland, Madame Noir, and the Me Too movement. Candace created the Lemonade Syllabus social media campaign, founded the media boutique Zion Hill Media Group, and in memory of her mother, established the Louis, is it Louise Marie? Louise. Mm-hmm. Louise Marie Foundation to support HBCU nursing students and community mental health projects, which means she only sleeps three hours a night when she's doing all Two this. And Candace is a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. Which, you know, to be honest, you know, white folks don't understand the world of black sororities and fraternities. So if that glosses over for some people listening in, it's that means more than probably most of us would ever imagine. So you can learn more about that at any point in your life if you want to. (laughs) And Candace holds degrees from Tennessee State University, North Carolina Central University and Duke Divinity School. I'm going to stop there. Candace, thank you so much for taking the time to be with the listeners today and with me personally. Thank you so much. It is an honor. I am really excited. Top three, top 10, top three, 2022. And you know, I'm not sure because is it, is it five or four where you are right now? What time is it? It's five where I am. Okay, five. So different time of the day. For me, it's noon. It's 12 here. We're five hours behind you. And I I don't know how you're feeling, but I'm going to tell you, I feel great right now. And I'm going to tell you why. Candice went from her book, Red Lip Theology, which we're obviously going to get into, being in on a billboard in Times Square, which you said you're going to visit this weekend. So she, I just want to say this to the people listening, okay? This she may not, she can be indifferent to this. This is for me right now. She's going uh-huh. from Times Square to Mark Lamont Hill to me and the church needs therapy. So <laughs> her and her team and her publicists are either really, really doing a favor for me or that shows me oh, that I'm, no. I'm, level, I'm leveling up in the world. Oh, whatever no. <laughs> I am excited. Absolutely excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't ask every guest this, but I'm going to start with this. The podcast is called The Church Needs Therapy. 
So yes. I'm going to start with something really simple. Does the church need therapy? Absolutely. <laughs> um, like, you know, unfortunately, there's so many ways that um, we have been, that the church has been harmful. And um, it's rooted in the church's own brokenness. It's rooted in the church's own um, refusal to change. Um, and the ways that that refusal to change and insistence that they are right, that the church is right, has harmed and bruised people. And those are the hallmark, you know, attributes and traits of any circumstance and situation that people would say you need to go and seek help. Um, and so if those would be the characteristics present for someone to say that an individual needs help, um, then how much more pronounced are they when an institution is unwell in that way? So absolutely the church needs therapy. <laughs> you know, I want to start, there, there's, there's different questions, different directions I want to go in for this conversation. But mm -hmm. with the name of the book, Red Lip Theology. Theology, yep. Okay. What is let's 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 begin there because I think that question can probably create this kind of larger container for the listeners to really hear more of what okay. you're saying, knowing the story it comes out of, knowing the energy it flows out of. So, what is red lip theology, and how does that this idea of red lip theology and that name clear out the right space for you to express your journey in the world and your life with God? So relative theology is the way in which um, I understand and see myself in the world as a Black millennial woman of faith. Um, it is how I understand how to bring all parts of me into, into a space where um, the fullness of my relationship with God is honored. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm able to... Um, to recognize that I can bring my whole self into, into my relationship with God and thus bring my whole self to my relationship with me. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and that kind of vulnerability, that kind of care um, moves me in a way that forces me to see the world differently for and my relationship with the world differently um as it relates to um my faith and 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 grounding in that and so uh you get to a moment you get to red lip theology is and and it actually is it's it's perfect that red lip theology and the church need therapy needs therapy come together in a conversation like this because relative theology is really in response to the deep wounds mm. um, that so many of us have felt in spaces where that are sacred that were supposed to keep us safe. Um, mm. In the book, I chronicle how my mom was a single mother and expected to um, stand before our congregation and apologize for being pregnant with me. And wow. she just refused to do that. Because so they, she said, someone in leadership asked her to do that. 
Yeah, so and which is customary in um, my uh, cultural context is that if a woman in certain churches back then, if a woman was pregnant and unmarried, it was her responsibility to stand before the congregation and publicly repent. Very often, it was not likely that the husband, that the man, the father, would be expected to do the same. In this instance, my dad was on the choir. That's how her mama. That's how he and my mother met. Mm. Um, but he was not expected to to make that apology, and it really troubled my mom. Um, and she didn't want to do it mm. um, because for her. She felt as though if she decided to stand up and apologize to me, apologize for being pregnant with me, then it made everything that it it suggested that whatever she did to have me was wrong and Mm. thus I was wrong, a Mm. mistaken sin. Mm. And she couldn't, she couldn't, do that Mm -hmm. and so i so the fact that relative theology and and the church needs therapy can come together in this way for this kind of conversation i think is important because relative theology is born out of this moment where um and moments where my mother and i have had to contend with the ways that the church has been harmful. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I, don't, I, I didn't know that story. Um, it's, you know, my, my wife and I, we, we started a church and we kind of we live in like the unofficial arts district, like Honolulu downtown. You can kind of see, you know, if we look a little bit that way mm-hmm. and we just announced three to four Sunday nights ago that we're going into the last chapter of the church. We started almost 10 years ago. That, that's a whole different story. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, like transitional life. And I think coming into Imagine, which is the name of our church, I told someone at a wedding I did recently, like, oh, you know, a guy just met like, hey, we're in the season. And he said, man, just the fact you're ending your marriage or you're ending the church together as a couple. Yeah. Like unified, it's such a big thing. And on the one hand, I know what he's saying because I know the pressure and how hard it is for couples. But I'm like, it's also so sad and grieves the heart so much yeah. how low the bar is because yeah. of how aware we are of the damage that gets done in the places that are ideally supposed to be the safest, most sacred places for us to grow up, be protected, be loved and cared yeah. for. And yeah, I, like for me, I was a part of the Catholic church when I was young and just kind of like stopped going so I grew up with sort of this, I told my mom recently, we we're talking about it, like this pleasant indifference of like, I just didn't think about it. But right. I told my mom, like, I'm grateful for that now. Cause when I hear the stories of so many of my peers, pe- parishioners and people of the real spiritual wounds, the real trauma yeah. that's woven into their lives. Like you, unless you grow up with that, you, I just would have never considered that until I got older, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I mean, and I think I think that's the part too, is that books like Relative Theology, podcasts like this one, um, conversations like this. And you spaces. heard it here first. I'm gonna use that as a drop. I'm remembering that she just mentioned. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like I mean, here's because here's the truth. Though that was not your experience, 
there were so many other people who grew up in a similar context as yours who completely have walked away from church mm. because of harm mm. who um and and there are people who are fighting actively right now to remain connected to the church mm. because they were harmed previously and the church won't continue with it right so you get conversations like these that create the space that that let them know like they're not by themselves mm. they're not alone like that 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 we have moved away from um these kind of regimented black and white legalistic understandings of how we see faith mm. to be very honest with people and be like look this is hard <laughs> mm. this is hard life is hard for everybody so if life is hard for everybody why am i gonna sit here and pretend like you um your 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 conversations around the church and the harm that the church has done to you isn't hard. Like life is hard for everybody and we gotta create room and space for people to be able to be honest about that because only when you're honest about that can you actually can you actually begin the journey to heal from some of Absolutely. that hurt. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, red lip theology is the very unique and specific and creative way for you to say all of the parts of what it means to be human have to belong or else it just isn't real and you can't do the real work yeah. and your you know the embodiedness the real life the day-to-day -day, along with our individual situatedness within broader economic social and political structures your experience of the fullness of your humanity so different from mine that what it, what yeah. it looks like for me to bring the fullness of my humanity and that experience into my life with God is so different from yours. But red lip theology is your way of saying what's true for everybody. We hope is to make room for all of that. Cause if not, then people like people yeah. are playing church. People know how to do that. This is who I am over here. This is what I do. Right. And the, the yeah. real connection, it just, it can't happen there. The life doesn't happen yeah. there. It doesn't happen there. It doesn't happen there. And part of the problem is that there is that that kind of compartmentalization of us. Um, this this belief that we can be okay in this space and act this way in that space and a different way in another space. Um, we are not, we don't realize the toll mm. that that takes on who we actually are like mm. you know what i'm saying like like when i tell people all the time and people laugh at me when i say this like i know scripture says that god neither slumbers nor sleeps and I also know that there are days when I do the absolute most and God is like, I got to take a nap because that girl down there has done a lot in two minutes <laughs> and I'm tired. <laughs> you know? and then, I, and could, I, could, I could I could, maybe confront her, but honestly, I'm just like, I'm too tired right now. I'm just going to let tired. her be for the day. I'm tired. And then I come to God the next day and I'm like, so God, I was at a 12 yesterday. <laughs> like, can you help me stay at like a five or six mm. today so we can balance that out? Like, in mm. the beauty of a real re and authentic relationship, 
you get to be yourself, right? You get to, you get to bring all parts of you and in the light of, and in the love of that relationship, you're held accountable to your growing edges, right? It doesn't Mm. mean, it doesn't mean that in my relationship with God, that in my prayer time and my quiet time, God doesn't say, okay, I really do want you to work on your mouth. Like, Mm. cause God does, right? Mm. Like that, that, like, I really, I actually do need you to work on, on having a softer heart and a, Mm. and and a much more intentional, um, intentional way of leading with grace and conflict Mm. resolution. Like those things become present when you are in relationship with other people and though when you can when you can name those and work through those it only happens when you're honest about who you are it only happens when you get the space and the opportunity to really shine and say this is who i am it's not who i used to be um but it's building on who I can become. And when I'm in a healthy relationship, even with the divine, I can see the possibilities. And we need more spaces that help us to honor and see that. Mm. Our intimacy with God is only as deep as our honesty with God. Yeah, And that's true in our relationships. And it's true even in how we relate to ourselves as yes. well and our ability to do that. Yeah. You know, you in the intro talking about, you know, having or embodying a fully engaged womanist theology. Mm-hmm. And I want to say something, and I want to ask you two parts. They're, they're, they're connected. You write mm-hmm. in the intro, you say, quote, womanist theology didn't feel like it was created for women like me. Um, sisters who didn't tuck in their ratchetness in favor of righteousness, which, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that just, that's just... Uh, so it's just so good <laughs> to occupy certain spaces or get in certain rooms. So one, I think there's all a clearly a deep appreciation from you when it comes to womanist theology, right? right. But then there, there's an edge there. There's also, but there's something here that doesn't fit work. Or for me, I have to, I have to take that and extend it further. So I want to ask you yeah. the first part of getting introduced to and second, why there's that kind of, thing you add to it um at what point did you get first get introduced to black and womanist theology and what was that like for you personally when it really starts connecting and it really starts hitting you and getting in you when you're reading kelly brown douglas and katie cannon and jacqueline grant and renita weems and all these amazing people who are true innovators and just these these amazing voices so when did that first get introduced to you and how is that hit how was that a part of your own journey? You know what's really interesting? Um I would that so I'm gonna say this. The first the first time I'm a I'm a I'm actually gonna answer that question backwards. The first time I was formally introduced to it was in college. Um the first time I was introduced to it was as a, was as a child in mm. my home watching mm. my mother read those books and um and she let me read those books um and I didn't know that that's what that was called you know mm. I didn't know that that was the kind of work that was being done I just saw that my mother 
he would print off Renita Weems, where she would tear out Renita Weems's columns and essence mm. and put them in her purse and put them mm. in her Bible wow. and read them alongside scripture. She had all of her books and Yana Van Zandt's books, and she was reading that and going to Bible study. And I remembered what um, my what that moment did for my mother, and I I wanted to I wanted to replicate it in mm. so many ways. Like I I wanted I wanted to do for for my generation as a writer what I knew these women had done for my mom. Wow. Um, but I didn't know at the time that that was womanist theology. Mm. Um, I didn't get to know that that was womanist theology until I went to college. And even then I was like, um, this don't feel like what I saw at home or what I see in my community. And, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that womanist theology was a largely, and still for a, for a large part is, an academic conversation, mm -hmm, right? which is much different than black feminism, right? Like yeah. black feminism was in the street, was in, mm -hmm. was, was in the masses. Like bell hooks wasn't just, you know, talking to sisters in the academy. Like mm -hmm. um, Angela Davis wasn't just talking to sisters in the academy. Mm. And, and, and it wasn't just sisters in the academy listening to either of them. And so it took a while um, for me to, to find a way mm. that said it's possible for me to honor what womanist theology gave me, which was language, and then also be very clear that there's another part that mm. is important that I need um, and that women like me um, should have as well. So that was, I think that that I would say is how I was introduced to it mm. and then what it looked like before then, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's one of the funny things about grad school or studying that regardless of what it is, is you can read something that's so profound and moving to you. You're like, and it's not a diss mm -hmm. to people who as if it's it's a it's talking down about their intellectual capacity. It's just being uninitiated and uneducated in that particular field. You're like, this is profound, but like, you can't read this mm -hmm. unless you've read, read this, this and this for three to four mm -hmm. years already. I couldn't have read this. X amount of years ago and made and really got it, you know? And, yeah, and that exactly. is a great challenge for the academy and seminary. And that's the, so would you say then where you're like, I'm reading this, I'm taking it in. It's so good. And you're, you know, these, these women are shaping you, but then you say, well, a part of that feels like it doesn't, you know, fully fit or wasn't created for women like me. What does that mean? You're like, I'm taking this. Yes. But is it, Oh, like a bell hooks, like black feminism, there's the desire to have this, but have it be in the streets, have it be an everyday conversation and have it do this, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. It was, it, it, my mom used to always tell me that you don't get, um, that I, that I take every woman and young woman who didn't get the same opportunities as me into the room with me. Mm. And 
Um, it was to teach me that you don't go in these spaces alone, but you carry their experiences. You're advocating for them, right? You are pushing for, for them to know that their space um, for who you, for who they are. And you get that, you get that opportunity to bring the experiences of others into that same space with you. And so I was really excited because I saw relic theology as an opportunity to do that. That mm -hmm. like, what does it mean to have these conversations that women who may never be in the academy, mm -hmm. who may never go to a class, but they get to they get to be a part of a discourse that was created for them. Mm. And that matters. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like that, like it matters that like we're not just having conversations about black women striving with white people. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that that black women get to be at the center of their own stories and their own conversations. And that's really what I hoped um, that this would, that this would give people the opportunity to see. Mm. You know, we have some mutual <clears throat> connections, friends of yours who have also, or however you're connected with them, who have been guests on the show. My last guest was Dante Stewart. Yeah, that's my brother. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Monica, Monica Coleman was on here a while yeah. ago. And I want to ask you a question about a couple of their books and your book, because I, I feel like it's related to what you were just saying, right? About mm -hmm. the, the work you read, but making it accessible as it flows through your own experience, because therefore it's actually touching, reaching, and being heard right. by the people who it's really being written for yeah. in the day-to-day. Because... Monica Coleman's bipolar faith, yeah. you know, Dante, Dante's, you know, shouting in the fire, fire. red lip theology. Yeah. What do well, you first, say to a person, probably a white dude who would say something like, this isn't theology. This is memoir. This is autobiography. This is stories. Like they're looking, theology is abstract conceptual ideas about God or about things. And yet here you have three people who are clearly can do the writing work, have done the academic, can do all that. But the theology and, and all of you make these decisions to write these amazing books where it is so much of your own story. It is so much memoir. So to a person who asked that question, you know, uh, that this isn't theology, what do you, what do you say to that? Um, I mean, first I would laugh, um, but, <laughs> but, but the personal is theological, right? Mm. Um, we come from, we come from traditions that, I mean, that affirm that truth, right? That like, I mean, you can look at scripture, like Jesus is walking with the, um, Jesus walking with the disciples and he's like, who people say that I am? Like what, like what are they saying about me in the street? Mm -hmm. And, and the disciples are like, Oh, they saying this, they saying that. Da, 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 da. And then Jesus says, who do you say I am? That's a theological question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's a theological question. And if, 
theology cannot be personal to you and for you, then it can live. It can't, it can't exist. Like God is personal. God is a personal God. Faith is, is a personal lived experience. And so I, I would first say, then if you, if, if your faith, if your conversations about theology exist in the abstract and do not honor the theological, I mean, the personal, then you're not having theological conversations. Mm. Um, but more than that, you know, I would tell white people, like, we come from a tradition that deeply honors the personal. Like one of my favorite books, an African-American systematic theology the title is We Have Been Believers. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like this ain't new to us, right? Mm. That this is, that the, that it's the, it's the same reason why Howard Thurman's grandmama would not allow him to read certain passages from Paul mm. that, that amplify enslavement and, mm. and the subjugation of women. Mm. Because she said, that ain't, that ain't my God. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So like I think that I think that when you get um a relic theology, a bipolar faith, a shouting in the fire written by people, two people who are completely and utterly dear to me, mm-hmm. um, what you're seeing is the black theological tradition mm-hmm. really at its finest. Mm-hmm. And at a space that allows for, that invites you in to have a conversation about faith and care and light and love and who we can be for each other in a way that does not um, negate um, the existence of the whole. Mm. And I mean... Yeah, like that's that has always been the beauty of black faith. Mm. That's always been the beauty of black faith. Mm. <sighs> Let me take, take a deep breath because there's a, there's a lot there for me that I want to say right now. And this is also this is about you. This is your space. <laughs> I'm setting you up. This is your interview. But then also there's things I I want to say. And one I, that that phrase, you know, the personal is the theological. Yeah. How many people? are going to read and have access to and hear about red lip theology who are never going to read Kelly Brown Douglas's the black Christ. Mm. How many people are going to read Dante's book who are never going to read Cone or read or other black theologians? How many people are going to read bipolar faith who are never going to read renewed wings a lot. So when you say it's the black theological tradition, that's finest, that's powerful. And I love it. And I see that, you know, I told when Dante and I were talking, I'm like, his voice that's one thing that's so powerful where growing up in the West as a white person, it is truly like, I'm not saying it's for everybody, but like it is the Western rational. We're individualistic. You have your way. Mm-hmm. I have mine. You're like, this is my dinner. I eat my plate. That's your dinner. You eat your plate. You eat we don't touch life, it. Yeah. And that goes into life as a whole in many ways. Mm-hmm. But then to see in different cultures and traditions and specifically within the prophetic radical black Christian tradition in the U S which is so amazing. You're like, you're always a part of a, you're jumping on a moving train. You're a part of a legacy that comes before you and you're continuing that, you know? So I think mm-hmm. it's amazing to see that, to see you consciously recognize that and do that. Cause it, that to me, that's what it is. And it's so powerful. And 
with the personal is the theological and the power of memoir and story is, you know, when one of something Cornel West loves to say all the time is, you know, justice is what love looks like in public. In public. And when I hear him say that, I thought this over the years, I'm like, justice is what love looks like in public. And Jesus is what God looks like in public. Mm. And I would say even right now, though, I've never said it. Mm-hmm. Our stories now is what that the, our theology looks like in public. My, the story mm-hmm. is the theology. My lived yes. life is the theology. It is the work yeah. that I'm doing. You know, even shameless plug for me, the listeners know, but my first book comes out May 31st, 2022, oh, Publishing. Yeah. I'm going to send you a copy. Dante Please says do. he doesn't read. Dante told me he doesn't read any books from white people anymore. I said, I'm, I'm not sending it to him. I'm going to send it to you though. So he's not getting it. <laughs> but so much uh, I just for whatever the reason I don't know how much I planned it but my first book ended up being a lot of my own story because the medium is the message Mm -hmm. the personal is the theological the tradition and whatever has shaped me whoever Mm -hmm. I carry with me is flowing through me in the stories decisions and day-to-day feelings of my actual life so you know, I get the yeah. Western rational expectations of what proper academic, et cetera, theology is, but the memoir and the story and why, how people are choosing not to write abstract books, but to have the theology flowing through the stories. I'm like, it's just a whole different thing that a lot more people are one, going to be interested in. And two, therefore they're going to have an open door to a tradition that they may have otherwise never had really had access to because so much of what we've read throughout our life is academic and seminary, you know? So I say absolutely. Absolutely. The personal is the theological. The medium is the message come on i'm gonna keep going you maybe in the end we're gonna talk about you know candace's 10-step regimen for skincare and how it's sacred <laughs> when it comes to skincare and just me washing i have a one step it's called an orange bar of soap that's all i got we live very different lives <laughs> i don't it's just a bar of soap it's a oh universal thing that's all i got oh and, my I'm in, and my wife and i both surf and i'm in the sun way too much so maybe at okay 40, i'm gonna have to start taking it more seriously you gotta like. get it you gotta get a better skincare regimen <laughs> you got to <laughs> Step. when it comes to washing i got a one step whatever we're different people we have so oh many different journeys. Um, that's hilarious what you know you, you tell a story in the intro about you know where the first time you said read the theology while you were at duke you know mm-hmm. what was happening in that classroom at duke you know you talk about the tension um you talk about taking it like the tension of whatever was happening there as quote, as a sign from the heavens to tell each and every white classmate what I thought about them. So what was <laughs> happening there? Tell me about that divine sign. You had some sit- white folks like, let's talk so we can, I can tell you yeah. I'm not like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. I will continue to support systems that don't work for you, but I want to let you know that we're cool and that we're fine. Right. You know? That's exactly what it was. That's so exactly what, what it was. What was happening there? Because I would honestly, I I think of Duke and I'm like, okay, Duke isn't like going to an extremely conservative seminary that's producing fundamentalists. You know, they have, you know, right. is, is, J, is J. Cameron Carter still at Duke? 
No, he's actually at Indiana University now. Okay, so that yeah. shows my age. You know, back when I was reading, I think he was still. Well, I, was I mean, no, school. he just he only left like um like three years ago, maybe. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't long ago. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, all right, you know, they have a Jay Cameron Carter. They have these other professors, writers. I'm aware of. I'm like, okay, they're pushing the conversation. That Duke sounds like a great place. <laughs> what was that experience? Take us back to that moment. Yeah, so Duke, I will say this. Duke was a great place. I actually went to um, Duke because of Dr. Cameron, uh, J. Cameron Carter, um, because I wanted to, I wanted to to study him and study under him and become a theologian like him. And mm. so, um, I part of um, I say that I say it this way. I don't think any. I was because Duke is so much about church history and tradition and orthodoxy, it gave me the tools to learn how to properly critique tradition mm. orthodoxy. Um, and orthodoxy. Um, and part of our requirement is that we take a Black church studies course. And in taking that Black church mm. studies course, the um we were told oh um you know white students white students never liked to take black <laughs> and it would always become this moment in class where they made it very clear that you know they didn't they wanted to be anywhere else but there and I just got tired of it. Uh, it came to a head when one of the students said that um, the work of Howard Thurman needed to be disciplined against other theologians, traditional white theologians. And I was like, you can't say that any work by Howard Thurman needs to be disciplined by anybody. <laughs> you know and what, what that, that is, that is a very, very, bold word to choose yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and so um we were in this moment where like it was clear that um either we could continue to let it fester or we had to adjust it for the year mm, and so that's so the unfortunate part is that in most Black church studies courses, that always happened. Hmm. Um, and so trying to make sense of that, as well as, you know, um, how we navigated what was a certain kind of evangelical racism and a certain kind of accountability that um, they refused to take. like. It wasn't anything for them to, for if you got a white, you held a white person accountable for what they said or did, for them to say something like, I'm just learning how to be white, what it means for me to be white for the first time. It was like, shut up. Like, <laughs> shut up. Like, you know, like, just just take your L and go be better. <laughs> like, you know, like, just shut up. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Um, and so, that was all happening um, in the backdrop of 
when I was going to school at Duke. Also, I was there at, you know, I was there 2012 through 2015. And there was a such an amplification of uh, a ratcheting up, I should say, of anti-Black violence. And, mm. you know, 2012, Trayvon, had, Trayvon Martin had just died. Rakia Boyd had just died. And a new movement was actually taking place. Um, and... I was I was coming I was being formed theologically at the same time as that movement. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that I mean the way you told that story it's you could really see and feel, you know, the the tension, you know, which led to the conversation with with the yeah. guy and you know it's the you know even at fuller when i was there i was there like in 2009 2012 and fuller like similar to duke i felt like at that point in my life i'm like okay they have these professors they're like pushing this okay like that i you know that makes sense for me i think i think it's good and they had african-american church studies in a black theology department at the time i don't know if they do because the the guy who was leading it when he left like i don't know exactly he actually moved to Atlanta and went to Columbia Theological Seminary, Dr. Ralph C. Watkins. And, oh, I know uh, that name, yeah. Yeah, he's, he was like, he was supposed to be my PhD advisor. He left the school and then he ruined my life. So if you ever meet him, you can tell him that. He left me I with will. nothing in the end and I had to rethink my whole life. But then I moved back to Hawaii, so it worked out. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at, at that point there, it was like an intro to black theology class that is uh, an elective you know, mm-hmm. or taking a further black theology course or the African roots of Christianity. These are probably like electives there. You know, it's not, that's when we have the conversation of decentering whiteness, decentering Eurocentrism. It's like, well, the voices for people of color, people on the margins, and especially in, in more evangelical places, queer voices, they don't, they might be, if you're like really seeking it out, you can come across it or this is one elective book and you can do it, but they weren't in the syllabus right it's like those classic things how many black voices are you reading in the syllabus how many women voices and all of a sudden you're like whoa now your friend's right. saying he's thinking about being white for the first time you know when someone's yeah. bringing that up um so would you at duke at that time have to intentionally when you talk about not wanting to center cis you know heteronormative or white voices in your own journey in your own life at Duke would you have to like intentionally like seek that out in terms of classes or electives or just your own reading no I mean I think yeah I mean there's an intention that you got to seek it out you seek it out with black church studies courses um you seek it out with the I mean Dr. Carter taught theology um and I mean he always centered the experiences of black people and people of color um so there's this there's this moment where you realize that in order for you to be able to make sense of what your um what your faith experience and your faith journey and what theological education is going to look like for you, Mm. you have to make the commitment that you are going to um, actively work 
to decenter yourself as a white person. Um, and that wasn't hard to do at Duke if you mm. wanted to. Mm, right. If you wanted to, there were there were African American professors, there were professors of color that would push you, but you had to want to do that. Mm, mm. You know, when we have this, you know, th- this thing we're talking about, the personal is the theological and growing, you know, in your own, you know, widening, becoming more inclusive, becoming more welcoming, becoming more, having a broader perspective on God, life, humanity, Jesus, mm-hmm. how this all, and of ourselves and how this all fits together. Now, where do you see the liberating Jesus in the gospels, you know, or what stories, what words, what moments in the biblical narrative as a whole or in the life of Jesus, do you look to of like, people can overlook this. People don't emphasize this. People don't read it like this, but this is the liberate, the one who's not just concerned about the salvation of our heart, but who's about the liberation of bodies, the turning over of unjust systems, et cetera. What are, for you, what are some of those stories that exist where you can just pull from easily that shape you? Um, I mean, definitely when I look at um, anytime Jesus healed someone, um, when um, Jesus, I mean, because, because here's the truth. When you heal someone, you radically change their conditions mm. um, and their ability to care for themselves and the people um, that they are, that they, that, that matter to them, um, their loved ones. Um, I think about when Jesus um, told them to drop their nets and I mean, here's the truth. Like there's this point where the whole point of that narrative is around, I can make you fishers of men, right? But the truth is, is like the, the, the part of that, of them getting more fish than they could, they knew what to do with, he radically changed their economic circumstances. Like those who are, those who are called to, to Christ um, and name the name of Christ um, are, should be committed to radically changing the conditions of people who need that help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think about, I think about ultimately, and I talk, I talk about this in relative theology and I stress it so much in every opportunity that I can is that Jesus taught us how to, how to live in community with each mm-hmm. other. Like mm-hmm. there's there, yes, we can talk about how he, um, we can talk about how, oh, yeah, he died to save our sins. We can have all of those conversations. And yet, there is a greater conversation to be had about the fact that Jesus, that there was so much that, that was about his life before then. Mm. And Jesus taught us how to live mm. 
with each other mm-hmm. and be in community, how to hold each other accountable, how to be held accountable, how to forgive, how to engage in reconciliation. Like that is who Jesus taught us how to be. And that's what Jesus taught us to do. And I hope um, that as we make sense of the gospel, um, that there is that there's room for us to honor that that is who we are called to be for each other. Like when Mm -hmm. we talk about what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus, the greater question is, what am I doing to care for those that I love? What am I doing to, to be safe space for the people who, who, um, who who are not who are not safe, right? Like, what what am what am I doing to hold to hold an institution accountable for harm? I got a podcast called A Church Needs Therapy, right? Mm. Like, I like like we've got to we've got to think about the ways that it matters to to be to be the radical shapeshifters mm. that that embody that same kind of radical notion and identity of who Christ is. Oh mm. mm. uh, yeah, that's uh that's good. I think to take one just the healing seriously. You know, to take the work of healing where we don't just completely minimize it to individual acts of piety, but to recognize the social dimensions of it, you know, the fish, when you can think about economics, even when it comes to, you know, the emphasis you have on community, the healing would change that person's place in the community. Cause if they had some sort of ailment that based on Jewish purity laws would keep them from each other, they have to go through rituals. When you heal a person, you're saying to them, to everybody else, now everyone else, accept her, accept him, embrace them mm-hmm. in ways you have not been able to embrace them because you believe these particular things about them excluded them. But now that I'm healing them, that is also connected with social acceptance and inclusion, which is everything because isolation is just so lethal to the spirit, you know? So those healings are always, that's a struggle where, it's so easy for so many sermons and teachings to take these radical social acts of Jesus and then strip them of their political, social, and economic power and reduce them to like these individual acts of piety. You know, mm-hmm. when it's, you take this massive, explosive, upending, exciting, amazing mm-hmm. thing that still has the power to challenge systems of power, relationship dynamics, et cetera, today, and we're like, so be kind, you know, mm-hmm. to a friend, mm-hmm. you know, when there's this whole other thing. Yeah. So, yeah, the emphasis yeah. on community, you know, in the, the, how healing happens, not just directly between me and God, but through the touch, presence, relationships of others and how the healing's connected. Our time's coming to an end. One more, oh, I'll, yeah. I'll give one more reminder at the end. Red Lip Theology, Candace Benbo, you listen to this which means you're going to go buy the book and then you're going to say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to buy two copies, one yes. for me, one for a friend. And also, cause I know how much it helps the authors. I'm going to write an Amazon review for her. Yes. And I'm going <laughs> to five star it. Cause we know how much 
reviews. Thank it's you. crazy to think how important Amazon reviews are. Just the presence it's of it, you know. Extremely so important. If you, extremely if you want if you want to be cool with Candice, you buy one book. You want to be really cool, buy two. Buy you two. Really great, then you write an Amazon review yeah. as well. I um, like that. What you have this book interviews you're doing doing work around it right now with this desire you have when you talk about the personals the theological the theology is flowing through our stories you're you're giving people access through your own life to these great traditions where is your creative energy this will be the last question into 2022 you know what are you caring about what are you giving energy to how is your your work now the continuation of your work what does it feel like what does it look like for you now um (laughs) that's interesting that you would ask me that i think um a lot of it looks at what it means to be love Mm -hmm. what it means to um hold care and space for each other Mm -hmm. um and I, I wanna, I wanna hold that, right? Like I wanna, I want all of my work and my creative energy to go there, um, to honor that commitment of what it looks like to thrive. And um, yeah, I think I think that's where I am. It's just like mm-hmm. what love looks like. Mm. And, um, and I mean, I'm writing a lot about that for the next book anyway, but what love looks like and how we hold what that love, what that love can do and who that love can be for us. Mm. Mm. Yeah. When you, when we're all smart and we want to be sophisticated and we read so many great things and there's so much work to do, it's humbling and also extremely liberating if we can let go of whatever we need to let go of personally in order to simply bear witness to suffering and hold that space for others without all of which we think it's for them, but it really is just about our own insecure egos of I have to fix, I have to say something, I have to give you a five-step plan as opposed to offering and becoming the very presence of God that holds together that space for them. It's funny, you go on this long, sophisticated journey reading and and then all of a sudden you're like, Actually, they just need me to hold that space and mm-hmm. be with them in flesh and blood. Not just, to me, it's something I say, and I believe it, where it's not just showing up as a carrier of the presence of God, but our life actually revealing itself as the mm-hmm. presence of God for others in those spaces. So you heard what that said. No, no official titles yet. Second book, you will be on the lookout for that. Two copies and an Amazon review for those yes. who really call yourself supporters. Um, yes. And so around May, you can, you can, you know, you do a little thing. You can show people, oh, cool. Kev just sent me an early copy. And then we'll mess with Dante and said, you said you don't it. want it. So you're like, he's <laughs> off the list. No, I'm still going to, I'm still going to send it to him too. I'm like, I don't care what you said. Don't even read it. You can just open it. Fine. Just look at it. <laughs> Um, appreciate your time, the energy, the work. Um, thank you. The church needs therapy. Special guest, Candace, thank you so much. If you're in New York thank City, you. find her book somewhere in Times yes. Square up there. Take a picture, <laughs> celebrate that yes. huge moment. 
That's amazing. Thank you. You know, I'm look, that's it's so cool for you to be able to go there this weekend and see it. And uh, thank you. Yeah, just appreciate your time and you have a good rest of your night. And uh, you too. hopefully our paths will cross again. Uh, will, yes. will, uh, cross paths again. I gotta get out there to Honolulu, so we need to just talk. Period. Because I'm I'm actually trying to come to Hawaii this year. So okay. Hey yeah. Rex, anything? Honestly, feel free to reach out. Well, my wife and okay. I, our kids, we got. We got it. We got we got a good feel on everything that's happening out okay. here. Okay, all that's right. I'm gonna hit you, you up. Want, you want to swim? You want to swim with turtles in the wild? We got you. You want to swim with dolphins in the wild? We got you. You want to swim with sharks out there? I got you okay, on that. that <laughs> you okay with that? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.